Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 5 through 18, the word of God says, Then said he unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes, now the way toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes, the way toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. He said, Furthermore unto me, Son of man, seest thou what they do, even the great abominations that the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary, but turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations. And he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Then said he unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them seventy men of the ancients of the house of Israel, and in the midst of them stood Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan, which his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the chambers of his imagery? For they say, The Lord seeth us not, the Lord hath forsaken the earth. He said also unto me, Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations that they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. Then said he unto me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Turn thee yet again, and thou shalt see greater abominations than these. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And behold, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about five and twenty men, with their backs toward the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, and they worshipped the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger. And lo, they put the branch to their nose and together. Therefore will I also deal in fury, mine eye shall not spare, neither will I have pity, and though they cry in mine ears with a loud voice, yet will I not hear them. And let's pray. Lord, amazing information here in this portion of scripture, and yet sad, sad of the state of the house of God and of Israel during this time. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us insight into this portion of Scripture, but also into our own lives. And as we seek to have a godly spiritual vision this year, may we 
deal with the sinful visions that we may be harboring and the sins that we may be doing in the dark and protecting. And Lord, that we could be clean before you and that you could heal us and so we could show the world how wonderful and mighty and gracious you are. And so we pray that you'd speak to us, Holy Spirit of God, speak to each heart, save those that need saving, convict those that need convicting, encourage those that need encouragement, comfort those that need comfort. But do your work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And so we've been talking about vision this year, all different elements of vision. And this morning I want to talk about this idea of sinful vision. Sinful vision. And so we are seeking to have a vision from God. Uh, But what if the vision that we currently have in our heart is not of God? What if it is a sinful vision? And the truth is, everybody has a vision. Everybody has visions in their heart and their mind. That's the way God made us. A matter of fact, science today teaches us that uh, the brain basically thinks in images. We may not understand that, but when you look at certain mnemonic devices and ways that people uh, learn things very quickly and the tips and tricks that people use to learn vast amounts of information, uh, they they categorize that information visually because the mind thinks visually. And that's why sometimes you'll be going along and an image will pop in your mind that you haven't thought about in a long time. But it's in there. It's in that that data bank. Perhaps it is a sinful vision of something you saw many years ago. Perhaps it's reliving uh, an event that took place in your life. But the brain basically thinks in visions, in, in images, And so everybody has images in their heart and mind. The goal is to, as Christians, as God's people, we seek to have a godly vision. We seek to have a, as we've talked about, a personal vision from God led by the Holy Spirit, a spirit-filled vision. Uh, We seek to have uh, a vision for our personally, for our families, for our church. We'll talk about all those things in greater detail as the year goes on. We talk about the, the uh, supremacy of God's written vision, how the Word of God is, is supreme. And the Bible even teaches us that the Bible we have in our hands is better than if you occasionally did hear from God verbally. Uh, God gave us a book that we can have all the time. And so we've been through all that. We've preached those messages. But what if? What if the visions that we have in our mind and our heart are sinful visions? As helpful as a godly vision is, that's how devastating a sinful vision is. And it will absolutely wreck your life. It will destroy you. It will affect everything from your marriage to how you interact with yourself uh, and, and, and other people and what you can do for God in this world. And so we come to Ezekiel chapter 8. Now, Ezekiel is a very, very interesting prophet. God talked to him in a way that he didn't talk to other prophets Uh, Ezekiel saw an awful lot of visions and a matter of fact probably one of the most difficult books of your Bible to discern what God is saying uh, just because of all the imagery and the wheels within the wheels and the fire here and this and that and so we have to rightly divide this word of God however there are some wonderful and beautiful and powerful and life-changing truths in this book as there are in all of the Bible God asked Ezekiel to do some pretty crazy things I mean, uh, he would he would act out these prophecies and 
And we won't go into all of those, but if you know the scripture, I mean, there's some pretty crazy stuff that God asked Ezekiel to do that wouldn't be okay for you and I to do. Uh, and so, interesting, interesting. But here we see a vision of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel is preaching, trying to reach uh, Israel, and Israel had been defiled by false gods. They had gotten away from God. Uh, socially, they were corrupt. Politically, they were corrupt. Spiritually, they were corrupt. And what we find in, in Ezekiel chapter 8 is all of those corruptions took place on the outside because people were corrupt on the inside. And so we, we just read a verse uh, about in verse 17 where he says, They have filled the land with violence. And we see a lot of violence in our world today, whether it be these crazy shootings or these terroristic activities and all of that. Those things don't happen because of specific weapons or because certain laws are in place. They happen because man is sinful in their heart. And when we take care of the heart, if we can cleanse the heart through salvation in Christ and teach people the word of God, uh, those things don't happen. But see, as the inside of the cup is dirty, you might be able to keep the outside clean for a while. But eventually the outside of the cup's going to get dirty too. And so we have to work on keeping the inside clean. And so uh, the Lord here showing Ezekiel a vision of why all of these things were happening because that the, the people of God were wicked within their heart. And we'll go through this verse by verse here in a moment, but he starts walking Ezekiel through the temple. And so we won't take time to go through the layout of the temple and the furniture and all of those things, but it's a wonderful study there. And, of course, the tabernacle and the temple, each piece of furniture points to uh, shadows, Jesus Christ, and, and our lives today. Uh, but, but nonetheless, the temple of God was supposed to be the habitation of God. It was a place where God was to be worshipped. And God brings Ezekiel to the very door of the temple, and the first thing he sees is an idol. And he begins to walk Ezekiel through the temple. And as he gets deeper into the temple, the sins get worse. And that's why he kept saying, he told him, you're going to see uh, great abominations in verse 6. But then he also says, and thou shalt see greater abominations. In verse 13, he says, and thou shalt see greater abominations. In verse 15, he says, and thou shalt see greater abominations. Now, abomination is the strongest word for hatred in the Bible. It's the, the strongest word that language can produce for hatred. And it's, it's like sometimes you don't like things. Abomination has this idea of disgust. Like it's disgusting. Like it's, I, I just, I'm going to throw up. Like it's, it makes me physically ill. It's so detestable. There's no stronger word for hatred in the Bible. And so these aren't just little sins God's people do. And I mean, they're involved in the deepest, darkest, grossest sins that humankind is, is uh, capable of committing. And it's happening right inside the temple. And what we find here is in this chapter is four abominations that we can look at in their lives and we can check our own lives to see, Lord, I need to make sure that my my vision, my internal vision, the things I see in my head, the things I meditate on in my heart, the way I see the world, I need to make sure that I am clean on the inside so I can get and live out God's vision for me. Amen? And so we see this idea of 
the first abomination. If you look at verse 5, uh, he says, Then he said unto me, Now, son of man, lift up thine eyes the way toward the north. And then he goes into the north. And notice he says, And at the northward gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. So right at the, as you walk into the temple, the first thing you see was an altar and an image or a false god uh, that, let me tell you something, God's jealous of his worship. God's jealous. The Bible says God is a jealous God. And people say, well, well, isn't that a sin? Because jealousy is a sin. Let me explain. Jealousy is wrong for me and you. Because usually human jealousy is we're jealous of things that aren't rightfully ours. But there are things that we should be jealous of. For example, I'm jealous of my wife. That means you can't have her. She's mine. If you ever tried anything, buddy, you'd get this unleashed on you in a heartbeat. And uh, see, I'm jealous of my wife. I'm jealous of my children. They're mine. You try to hurt them, you got to deal with me and about six of my friends. And uh, we got, I'm, I'm jealous, jealous for them. And so when the Bible says God is a jealous God, listen, God owns everything. And he's jealous of his holiness. He's jealous of his glory. He says, you can't have what is mine. Now, that is not a sin for God. Neither is it a sin for me to be jealous of my wife. She's mine. I, and not, not by property, but by relationship. I'm, gonna, I'm going to protect her. I'm, she has uh, promised herself to me and, and me to her. And so that is a right and proper way to go about that relationship. And when the Bible says God is jealous... There are things in life that God says they're mine. You can't have them. And any transgression of that is a sin. And so when it talks about here the image of jealousy, God said, this is my house. And the first thing you walk in is a false God. And I'm jealous of that. How would you feel, ladies, if you walked in your house uh, this week and there was another lady living in your house? What? You'd say, we'd have a problem. Well, this is how God feels. That's my house. You're my people. And so we see that the first thing, these abominations, had not just gotten into their heart. And you're going to see as you go deeper into the temple, the abominations start on the deep, deep inside, and they get worse the darker and deeper you go. But if you have these abominations on the inside, eventually they're going to move to your front door. And if you can see sin in somebody's life on the outside, you better believe that it goes way deeper than that. And it's a lot worse on the inside. And so uh, we see this. Now, this is very, very interesting. The God here that we're talking about is actually uh, a very specific God. And, of course, all of these gods were, and we don't spend a lot of time studying false gods unless they're instructive to how we can better serve God. But this is the Babylonian goddess Asherah or Astarte, if you're talking about the Greek and Roman gods. And this goddess is considered to be the wife of Baal. Now, if you know your Old Testament, Baal worship was very terrible, and it was a constant stumbling block to the people of God. And you say, well, all religions are created equal and every religion needs their, you know, here's what people say. Religions are basically the same. And I tell you, no, that's wrong. People will say, well, religions are are 
are fundamentally the same and only superficially different. And I would say, no, that's the exact opposite. Religions are superficially the same, but fundamentally different. And so, uh, boy, they're, they're very, you talk about different ways to heaven. That's a pretty big difference. You talk about different ways to live. Some religions don't even believe in an afterlife. Uh, some do, but they don't believe it the way God says it. Uh, some teach that, that there's a, a, a million ways to heaven. Uh, and by the way, people say, well, religion, uh, Christianity is exclusive. Well, so is Buddhism. And so is Hinduism. There are very few religions that say our religion is one religion, but it really doesn't matter because any religion will do. No, every religion claims to be the best and it claims to be the one for you unless you get into the new agey type stuff, which is which is interesting. But here we have the people of God. Not only are they stumbling over Baal worship, the entirety of the Old Testament, which Baal was just a filthy God, also known as Lord of the Flies. History tells us that sometimes to worship Baal, people would take animal and human feces and cover themselves with animal feces and human feces as a way to worship their God. How'd you like to serve him? No. Uh, in Chicago, we had some, uh, one of my buddies was in an area of town where they had, uh, Hinduism was popular. And in, in India, they have 330 million deities. And uh, everything's a god. And uh, they would go in the house and they would have a, a picture of Brahma, a little idol of Brahma or Shiva. And right in front of them, they would have a little thing burning, like incense, and it would stink up the whole house. And they would say, what is that? Oh, well, that's, that's animal dung. We burn that to our gods. Excuse me, it's what? It's a what? Now, I'm, I'm a fan of a Yankee candle, you know. <laughs> Or uh, I, don't, I like candles. I like the house to smell nice, right? Uh, matter of fact, every time I go into Cracker Barrel or something, you can find me over by the candles. And, I, oh, I like that one. Oh, I like that one. And uh, I, I like those things. And so the, these, these gods, these false gods, they're, they're abominable. And they're often mixed with immorality and death and destruction and, and all of these types of things. And so we have a, a very specific goddess here. A matter of fact, oftentimes when you see the Bible talking about groves, uh, you, you'll see in the Old Testament God was mad at people because they would build a grove. And a grove would be like a little grove of trees, but usually it was uh, that grove of trees. The problem was that is because that was where they would worship this particular goddess. And so hold your place here and look at 1 Kings chapter 18. Let me give you some context here. First Kings chapter 18. And look at verse uh, 18. Of course, this is Elijah confronting Ahab and Ahab and Elijah. Well, look at verse 17. It came to pass when Ahab, who is a wicked king, saw Elijah. By the way, Ahab served Baal. And his, his wife, wicked wife Jezebel, uh, Ahab goes to the preacher and says, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Now, isn't that interesting? Uh, he's blaming the preacher for all of the wickedness that he's brought on the country. And oftentimes, wicked people need someone to blame. 
You ever notice that in your life where people just need someone to blame? And it's never their problem. It's never their fault uh, when often it is. And look at verse 18. And he, Elijah, answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam, or Baal. All right, verse 19. Now therefore send and gather to me all Israel to Mount Carmel, and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. So the prophets of the groves are prophets of Asherah or Astarte, that was the wife of Baal. So Ahab's favorite god was Baal, and Jezebel's favorite god was the wife of Baal. And so they had this cute little thing going. Now these are the eventual 850 prophets that end up getting killed in this chapter, and then Jezebel gets so mad at Elijah, and then that story goes on here. So we see that the groves were often related to this false goddess. All right, look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter, or excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 21. And look at verse 1. Now there's a wicked king named Manasseh, and he was one of the wickedest kings. Uh, the Israel, the northern tribes of Israel had many wicked kings, but this guy was, was one of the most wicked. And uh, look what it says in verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after all the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed and reared up the altars for Baal and made a grove. And again, the grove speaks of here the wife of Baal, as did Ahab king of Israel and worshipped all the host of heaven. And, uh, of course, the sun, the moon, the stars, all of that. And there was a goddess that was involved in that. Uh, verse 4, and served them. Verse 4, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. Let me go back to the end of verse 3 for a minute. When he says he worshipped and served them, this is the problem with false religion. False religion is not just some vacuous idea in the heart, but doctrine determines destiny. So false religions teach what's right, what's wrong, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable, what precepts are you going to live by. And when you buy into that system of belief, you cannot help but have that work out into your life. Just like atheism, which is a religion. It's a religion. We're going to preach about that here soon. It's a religion. It's by faith. You say, well, you can't prove there's a God. Well, you can't prove there isn't. Matter of fact, there's more evidence there is a God than there's evidence there isn't. And so the burden of proof is on you, <clears throat> but they want to claim scientific, uh, uh, some scientific uh, foundation when no, science cannot prove or disprove God. Matter of fact, science does, though, prove that how in the world does all this happen by accident? It is easier to believe the creation story in Genesis 1 through 3 than it is to believe that all this happened for no reason, by nothing, we're all here by accident, and we're all going nowhere. Matter of fact, I was doing, and I don't want to give away my sermon. Man, I'm excited about this sermon I'm going to preach. Scientists are talking about, agnostic scientists are talking about that the universe and the earth specifically is fine-tuned for life. If things were a percentage of 1% out of balance, life could not exist. And one, one mathematician said it's almost like that the universe was designed by some type of super intellect. 
That's kind of the idea, right? That's kind of the idea. And so that's a sermon for another time. Uh, but, but I love it. And so the problem with all this, though, is even with atheism, if you believe you're here for no reason, that life is nothing, that humans are just a, another type of animal, that's going to work out in how you approach life. Because doctrine determines destiny, amen? And so he's, he not only worshiped them, but he served them. All right, look at verse 4. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. Verse 5, and he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire. That speaks of a God named Molech. And observed the times and used enchantments, magic, and dealt with familiar spirits. Those are are demon-possessed people and wizards. And he wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set, verse 7, and he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of the Lord. Now, we can stop reading there. You see, this guy was bold. I mean, there had been wicked kings before, but there had always kind of been this separation between, I'm going to be wicked, but we'll we'll let them have the temple and they can worship the Lord, and we'll, we'll worship our false gods over here. Manasseh was so bold that he literally put idols and altars to false gods and demons inside the house of the Lord. God was appalled. How in the world does this happen? Let me warn you, there's a lot of buildings out there, and some of them are even open this morning. There's a lot of buildings that have church on the sign that's filled with idols and adultery. And it's no more a church, and it's no more pleasing and honoring to God than what was going on right back here. And so we must beware. And so we're talking about, we see that Manasseh put an image much like this right in the house of the Lord. Now, look at 2 Kings 23, because this is good. God always sends a prophet or someone to come and set the record straight. 2 Kings 23, there's another king that raises up whose name is Josiah. And Josiah is one of my favorite kings. He was just a, a wonderful king. And he, like Manasseh, became a king when he was a young boy. But he chose to follow the Lord when he was young, whereas Manasseh chose to follow idols when he was young. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 23, and look at verse 1. Oh, let's see. Yeah, verse 1. And the king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great, And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. So here's the the scenario. Israel had gotten so far away from God that they had actually lost God's word. Even the priests didn't have a copy of God's word. So they're just worshiping as best they know how. Traditions passed down, this and that. But then they were cleaning up. Josiah had a heart for God. And matter of fact, the temple was broken down. And so he had commissioned people to remodel the temple to make it honorable again to the Lord. And while they're in there, they find these Old Testament scrolls. And they begin reading to Josiah. And Josiah's like, oh, man, this is worse than we thought. We're so much more further away from God than we ever believed. So he called everybody together. He made everybody show up. And he said, you all have to hear this. And he began reading 
and had it read the words of the Lord. Which, by the way, it's the word of God that teaches us right and wrong. It's the word of God that matters. You're here at church this morning. I'm not just teaching you what I think or man's philosophy. I'm showing you the word of God. And it's the word of God that has the power to convict. It's the word of God that gets down to that dividing asunder of soul and spirit deep down in my heart and says, listen, this is wrong and this is right and you need to fix this and you need to correct this. And I thank God for God's word. Anyway, he begins reading it and the people were shocked. Look at verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the door, to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, and for the grove, and for the host of heaven. And he burned them uh, without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and carried the ashes of them up to Bethel. And he put down the idolatrous priests, whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense, in the high places in the city of Judah. And round about Jerusalem, them also he burned incense to Baal and to the sun and to the moon and to the planets and to all the hosts of heaven. Verse 6, and he brought out the grove, remember we're talking about that false goddess, from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem, under the brook Kidron, and he burned it at brook Kidron. But I like this, he didn't just burn it, he stamped it into small powder, and then he cast the powder thereof upon the graves of the children of the people. And man, you read through that, it's just absolutely amazing, the revival that took place because of God's word. But you see, even in Josiah, he was, he was remodeling the house of the Lord, but he wasn't taking out all of these false idols. He wasn't removing the grove and, and all of these images. But he read the word of God and know that God needs to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And you don't decide how to worship God. God tells you how to worship him. And then you decide if you're going to do it that way or if you're going to worship something else. People say, well, I worship God my own way. No, you don't. You either worship God his way or you're not worshiping him at all. I fear that what we've done to Jehovah God is we've made him like unto one of these other false gods and we fashion him like as we want him. We put all the pieces that, well, God doesn't care about this and God doesn't care about that and church isn't important and, oh, you can do this and be a Christian. And, and, and so people create their own little version of God. My friend, that is idolatry. God reveals unto us who he is. We either believe it or we don't. God tells us what to do. We either obey him or we don't. Do you see this abomination? It's the first thing Ezekiel sees. Now, each one of these false gods has a prevailing element of their worship. And one of the prevailing elements of Astarte is immorality. She was actually considered to be the fertility god. And her image was often, I can't even describe it. Immorality is often mixed with false gods. Because it's God that tells you, no, you save your body for your wife and you save your body for your husband. It's God that tells you, in the beginning, he made them male and female. And you'll leave, one, you'll leave your parents and cleave to the one. We are not animals. 
running from person to person and place to place. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that God didn't make the body for fornication but for the Lord. And some people who buy into these false gods, they see the body as simply a vessel of pleasure. No, it's not a vessel of pleasure. It's the tabernacle. It is the temple of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us. When you and I get saved, the Holy Spirit moves in to indwell us. Now this is the temple of God. And so these abominations, let me tell you, we live in a, in a sexualized culture. Everything is about sex. Everything. Commercials, TV shows, everything. And you as a Christian, you have to protect your mind from that. You have to protect your heart from that. Any type of sexual deviance is a sin. Any type of sexual deviance is a sin. You say, well, you're, you're, against, you're against sodomy. I'm against men and women committing adultery and fornication. You think I'm crazy. Don't go there. Let's go back to the very beginning. All of these other things wouldn't even have taken hold if we didn't, as a culture, say that fornication and adultery was okay. I'm still crazy enough to believe that young people ought to save themselves until they're married. You say, well, how do you know if you're going to get along? We can teach you. We can teach you how to figure that out. Matter of fact, what you find is young people are not emotionally and mentally capable of processing the complexities of an emotional, mental, and physical relationship at the same time. And it becomes all about the physical. That's why we often talk about young people involved in that sin. They don't think straight. They can't even think straight. And so Christians, if, if, if all the world goes crazy, Christians have to be right on point of this thing that immorality is a sin. That God has ordained that we carry this vessel in sanctification and honor, as the Bible tells us. But see, that's just on the outside. Let's move in. And I've got to move a lot faster here. Uh, look at the second abomination, verse 7. And he brought me into the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And then he said unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. Oh, a hidden door. A hidden door. See, we all have hidden places in our heart. The deepest places of our heart. And verse 9, and he said unto me, go in. Lord, you want me to go into this deep, dark place? I mean, we're in the deepest places of the hearts. The Lord said, go in. I need you to see what's happening in their heart. He said, and behold, the wicked abominations that they do here. Verse 10, so I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed or set up, displayed, on the wall round about. So what, what's he saying here? That there was a room where everything that God said was off limits was on display. Creeping things. You say, what's the big deal about creeping things? Well, God said, don't eat them. Matter of fact, I got the verses here. We won't look at it, but Leviticus chapter 11, you can look at it. Very interesting. Um, 
in Genesis, God created the creeping things and they were good, but something happened when, when sin fell, it changed creation. And now uh, roses had thorns and mice uh, are basically the vacuum cleaners of nature, right? They, uh, and, and the Bible says, matter of fact, many of the dietary laws, they didn't know it back then, are scientifically correct. There are certain things you shouldn't eat because they're bad for you. They're disease-ridden. They're poisonous. Uh, for example, the Bible says don't eat pork. Now, I'm thankful that in the New Testament, God says that everything is acceptable with prayer, and uh, we can pray over bacon, and it's okay. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But let me tell you, that doesn't make it healthy for you. All right? It does. I wish we could say a prayer, and it takes all the fat away. I wish I could pray over an Ali's donut, and Lord, please take away all the fat and the calories and uh, help my taste buds. Amen. And you could eat. No, th- there are still consequences, right? Uh, and, and even they'll tell us that pork, while it feeds a lot of people, is not the cleanest meat. And it has a lot of problems. And, and so a lot of the dietary restrictions that people look at and say, oh, that was just legalism. That was just know that there was a lot of common sense in that, that God didn't explain all of the science behind it. But it was very scientific back in the day. And so uh, we ought to, we can look at the dietary laws and receive instructions. As a matter of fact, in the verses I've got here, Leviticus chapter 11, it tells you there are certain things you can eat, uh, like crickets and grasshoppers. Those are lawful under the, the uh, Hebrew law. But then there's certain things that you can't eat, like centipedes. Now, I only know a few people in this room that have ever eaten crickets and grasshoppers. And uh, who's eating crickets and grasshoppers? Brother Pash has... You go, you've eaten chocolate-covered, you've eaten chocolate-covered everything, I think. And who else has eaten crickets and grasshoppers over here? I saw another hand somewhere. Uh, Brian, you've eaten those? Awesome. And a little chipotle pepper seasoning on there, a little, <laughs> just, just the straight, right? Yeah, that's hungry, bro. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great, in the military, right. And so, but those are lawful. Matter of fact, the Bible says about John the Baptist that he ate grasshoppers and honey. That was lawful. But there's certain things you shouldn't eat. Now, apparently there's something better, but I've gotten spitting on too many grasshoppers in my young days to, to want to eat them. But uh, all of these laws are interesting, but don't, don't miss the point here. It's that the creeping things were off limits. The abominable beasts, off limits. The idols of the house of Israel, off limits. But in the heart, they were displayed. And so on the outside, they were pretending like they were complying. But on the inside, they were living in rebellion. And this is the abomination number two, the rebelliousness of the heart. Okay, I won't do it on the outside, but as soon as I grow up, as soon as I get out of this house, I'm going to do whatever I want. That's rebellion and wickedness. Well, I'm, I'm going to pretend like with my wife I'm being faithful, but on the side I'm looking at other stuff. That's rebellion and wickedness. And so you, you could put in any of those things in there. But a rebellious heart, the abomination. And then it talks about verse 11, the 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. These 70 men represent the people. This was not just a problem that was happening here and there. This was becoming a representation of the large part of the population of Israel was pretending to serve God on the outside, but in their hearts, they were filled with rebellion. Pretty sad state, isn't it? How many Christians today claim the name of Christ but live in absolute rebellion? I'll do what I want, when I want, where I want, how I want. God doesn't care about that. God doesn't have an opinion about that. I can do what I want. I'm under grace, not the law. Rebellion. We ought not be asking what we can get away with. We ought to be asking, Lord, what would please you? 
Verse 12 talks about the chambers of his imagery, that secret place of the heart where we rerun the images we meditate on. I'm going to have to end with this. We'll have to go over the two other abominations another time. Uh, But notice at the end of verse 12, Then said he to me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients do in the house of Israel in the dark? You know, my mama used to say, not much good happens after dark. Right? We can testify to that. Parents, make your kids come home. I mean, know where they're at. Have, have some rules and guidelines. We do them no, well, I trust my kids. It, it's not about trusting them. It's about, do you trust the devil? I know a lot of good kids that never intended to get in trouble, but the devil's good at his job. Just like I know a lot of adults that never intended to get into that sin, but they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, and, and they fell to temptation. We ought to have rules for ourselves, too, not just our children, right? We ought to have guidelines in place for us. We must be careful because things happen in the dark. Notice what it says, though, the two reasons why they said they were giving themselves permission for this. The first one they said is because God doesn't see. And we know that's a lie. God sees everything. And we could look at some other verses here. We won't take the time, but Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Right? In every place. God sees what's happening. And, by the way, praise the Lord for that. That ought not be a, oh, no, God sees me. It ought to be praise God. Because while that's a warning against sin, it's also a comfort and tribulation. Praise God he sees me. Praise God he sees you when you cry in the dark. Praise God he knows your loneliness. Praise God that you're going through a tough time and he knows exactly where you are and exactly what's going on. It's not just a threat, it's a promise. But see, when we forget the Lord sees us, then we, that gives us permission. Well, I would never do this at church, but I'll do it in my bedroom. And see, matter of fact, the, the word here for the chambers of imagery are speaking about the priestly bedrooms in the temple. So the priests would actually stay on the property. They had bedrooms in the temple. And so what they would never do on the platform, they were doing in the bedroom. And, boy, we ought to not just live for God outside the home. We ought to live for him inside the home. Right? And then they said, the Lord hath forsaken the earth. God doesn't care about us. He's forsaken me. The thinking here is that because God is allowing bad things to happen to us, he doesn't care. And what they were missing is bad things were happening to them because they had rejected God. And oftentimes people don't, backslidden people and lost people, they don't make that connection. They say, well, if there was a loving God, all this bad stuff wouldn't happen. No, all this bad stuff has happened because you've forsaken a loving God. And so it gets worse and worse the further away from God you get. As a matter of fact, at the end of the chapter, we read it, verse 18, the Lord says, now as bad as it is, you keep running from me and getting involved in this sin. Now I have to punish you further because sin has to be punished. And so it's going to get worse so that this false thinking where, where God, doesn't, God doesn't see and God's forsaken us, he doesn't care anyway, so I'm going to do more wickedness, was actually perpetuating their terrible situation, which was giving them permission to go into sin further, which was causing God to, to chastise them further. You see the, and by the way, this is what happens to cultures and societies. And I think you're seeing this play out in the American culture right now. 
In American culture, people are saying there is no God, and if there is, he's forsaken us. So we're making our own rules. We're making our own laws. There's no right or wrong other than social justice and political correctness. But as they run away from God and they choose all the wrong rules and they, they delve into deeper and deeper sins, more and more bad happens. And you can look at this in the fall of every empire. And so we need to pray for America. We need to pray for churches. But most importantly today, I ask you to look in your own heart for sinful visions. And let's make sure that we are with God's help, keeping the inside of the cup clean. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for the uh, scripture we looked at today. We pray, Lord, we all struggle with sin. And God, I pray you'd forgive us of our sin. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive us as a church of our sin. Forgive individuals of sin. We all struggle. We all uh, yield to temptation when we should stay strong. We all have besetting sins. But Lord... Those sins ought to get different as we grow in you. They, they change. And so help us not to be strapped and bogged down with the base sins of this world. Help us to get victory over things like immorality and rebellion. Help us not to play out those visions in our hearts and our minds. Lord, evict them from the deepest places of our hearts so you can take residence as the king of our heart. We pray, Lord, that you would bless each person here today. Help us to know your truth. Help us to teach and preach the love of God this week, the mercy and grace of Christ, that anybody can get saved who will come, that anybody, whosoever will, can put their faith in Jesus this week. Lord, we ask that you'd sanctify us, help us to be clean so we can serve you better. Heads about, eyes are closed. Let's stand. We're going to have an invitation as we do at the end of each one of our services. Now's the time. Now's not the time to leave or to think about what you have to do. Now's the time to take just a minute or two and think about the message. Lord, what, what is in this message for me? What, what can I take from this message? How is this going to change my life or my thinking? Maybe you're struggling with some deep, dark stuff. Deal with God with that. Maybe the truth is you've been serving God for a while and God has cleaned you up from a lot of those deep, dark things. But man, don't, is there any rebellion creeping in your heart? What about the, the uh, sins of the Spirit? A jealousy, anger, envy, covetousness. Boy, 